Hi, welcome to the fourth episode of the Steph's Place podcasts. Today, I'm doing an interview with Julie Miller. Um, what, what we're doing here is a kind of meet the team for Steph's Place. And Julie is a long, long time member of the team. So welcome, Julie. Hi, Vicky. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yes. Very good. So it's nice to finally get to do a podcast with you. I know we've kind of spoken about this before. Um, let, let's start just with, you know, a little bit about your history, you know, and I, I know you, you used to work in um, in the military, you were in the army. Could you just give us a bit of history around your army life? Yes, I uh, joined the army in 1985, went to Royal Military Academy Santos and was commissioned by Her Majesty the Queen. I have, so I hold the Queen's commission um, and I left four years ago in the rank of major. Um, so I had 25 years, which was great, although it was always tempered by my gender identity issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I started being aware of my gender identity issues when I was about 12, 13. I started to wear my mother's and sister's dresses. Uh, but in those days, you know, if you got caught wearing such items, you were section under the Mental Health Act and placed in what was effectively known as a lunatic asylum. Yes, indeed. Something or other. Um, so when I joined the army in the 80s, uh, I, you know, I, I, I kept those feelings in a dark, distant compartment at the back of my brain and only revealed my true identity to close friends, Yeah, which wasn't many. But if I had revealed them to the army, I would have been thrown out on mental health grounds, as were many trans people. Yeah, so there, were, there really wasn't much help back in those days, was there? In the 80s? Not until, 70s. yeah. I mean, probably about 2010 um, I, I was when army policy changed and they produced a transgender management document written by a friend of mine, Stephanie, uh, now, uh, sorry, Hannah Graf. Yeah. Friends' names mixed up, Hannah Graf, and uh, yeah, and since then, uh, coming out as trans in the army has been so much easier, and so that's what I did in my last two weeks in the army in 2018. I came out as trans, and um, but in 2016, I I was diagnosed with gender dysphoria at a gender identity clinic, the Laurels in Exeter, and I was recommended to live as a woman for the rest of my life for the sake of my good mental health. Yeah. Um, and that's when I, and then, and then in 2018, I, I revealed that the diagnosis to the army. So, so when you were working with in the army um, at the time, and I, I've heard this from quite a few people who, you know, are gay, and the message I kind of get is that the the rules only apply to gay people in the army or in the in the military, and the. I sometimes get the feeling that they're trying to say that it didn't also apply to transgender people. So were, were transgender people treated differently? Um, yes, uh, in that you could you could come out and be uh, LG or B before you could come out as trans. The, the trans um, policy in the army... Uh, came after the LGB policy, um, but I don't uh, have that intimate knowledge of the processes. At the time, 
Um, as I said, it, I just pushed it to the dark recesses of my mind. I wasn't involved in the politics. And it's only when I came out myself that I did my homework. Um, but um, the army is obviously a very macho culture, very masculine. And anybody who showed any other traits besides strong masculinity yes. um, was, in my case, I was bullied. I, I had seven months off on sick leave because one of my fellow officers decided that to take advantage of the fact that I had femininity and, and he, he played upon that. Um, so it's uh, the, yeah, it's it's complicated and it's um, messy, um, but and that's one reason why I left. I left um, before my contract ran out, uh, and I did so so I could be fully my gender expressive self. Um, without any worry about being bullied by people in my you know, colleagues and people around me. So, so whether you were, you know, gay or trans in the army, I guess the outcome was the same. The thing about army policy is that it's fantastic in the barracks, where military law is applied and uh, military discipline can be applied if people broke military law. But once you're outside the barracks. You can still mix with the same people, and they will be. They they, they, they might not be old, they might be abusive. And I had a trans friend in the barracks. She was treated with all courtesy, respect, and dignity required of army policy by all her colleagues. But when she went to the supermarket, she came out and she found her car had been keyed, and the word "effing tranny" inscribed on it. Yeah, and no one. So, and that was obviously by. A soldier who didn't agree with all this transgender stuff yeah they've read about yeah and what were you what was your role in the army you were an engineer i was an engineer i was a chartered engineer a professional engineer and i had various roles um for example i was responsible for the maintenance policy for the army's tank fleet chieftain and challenger and that took me to jordan where i met king of jordan and his wife twice and uh, it also um i was a uh, an audit officer uh, auditing the repair of challenger tanks uh for a good seven or eight years i was also a training officer and the best job i did which i can't talk about <laughs> is that i was in the army's uh, defense intelligence staff um, oh, right. okay. in whitehall london and that's all I can say about that job. Uh, that sounds interesting too. <laughs> it was the best job in the world. And I wish I could tell you about it. But if I did, then... Um, no, let's not get in trouble. In men in dark suits uh, coming to uh, mind. Yeah, we don't We don't need dark suits arriving, do we? <laughs> so, so you retired from the army. Um, you, you live in Dorset, is that correct? I do. I do. And you've worked in the past with an organisation called Chrysalis, which I believe became... Uh, beyond reflections yeah so when i left the army i wanted to do something with trans people um in a voluntary capacity and i joined chrysalis and i became their uh, local uh, area manager for where i live in dorset and i set up a support group and facilitated that uh any one night we'd have five or ten trans people all going through various stages of their transition some suicidal and um some very much in the closet. And uh, I did that for two or three years until we had this um, nasty bug started going around, which we now 
And then all the support groups were shut down physically and they went online. And it was at that stage I um, realised that uh, I wanted to um, pursue other trans-related interests, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah. And um, and I, there's, there's only 24 hours in a day, so so the one that I gave up was working with Chrysalis. So what does Chrysalis actually do? I know they've got renamed, but what yeah, is their kind of core function? Their core function is to um, provide emotional support to trans people and people who are gender diverse. Um, so, and they set up four or five physical support groups in places like Portsmouth, Southampton, Basingstoke, and they, at any one time, would be giving and still, I think, would still give support to over a hundred trans people, gender diverse people, and they have. Um, uh, support groups where you sit and talk to other trans people about your issues and then they have one-to-one counselling with a professionally trained uh, British Association for um, uh, Counsellors and Physiotherapists um, Did I say physiotherapists? And yeah, it's a fantastic and the point is that um, there's not the, the financial outlay by the members is very small. I think they have yeah. to pay ten pounds, and that's it. So they get a fantastic facility without, and a lot of trans people, because of the nature, the fact they they can't get a job because they're trans, so they haven't got much money. So Chrysalis is a fantastic resource. So it's a free resource where you, you can show up and join in. Actually, it saves lives. I mean, I've in my Group. I've, I've had people come through and you know they literally have been on the edge of death through yeah. um, depression and, and suicidal ideation and you were the you were the area coordinator yeah are you are you still involved with with the organization uh not really no no it, it, i just uh, i've got too many thumbs and too many pies yeah. so you've also got um your own website which I shall give you a plug, juliemiller.me.uk. And you use that website to do trans awareness talks and various things. Do you just want to explain what that's about? Well, when I came out as trans in 2018 to my children, my daughter happened to be the LGBT liaison officer for Winchester University. And she was really great. She said, oh, Dad, Dad, you're trans. That's fantastic. No problem with that. Will you come and give a presentation to our uh, conference? And there was a conference at Winchester University, about 100 people, all to do with gender diversity. And I gave a one-hour presentation, which I um, drummed up. And I got quite a very, well, I got a very positive feedback. People said, that was fantastic. You should do this for a living. And, and that's what I started doing. Um, and I started doing presentations to... Uh, local hospitals, local prisons, uh, charities, and um, so it was unpaid, mostly, and also giving consultancy advice to the local councils and um, the business. I then I then uh, developed the website uh, with a good friend of mine who's a web developer, and she, she, she helped me with that. I think we should give her a plug, too. Anne, the lovely Anne, yeah. 
Yes. She's 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 one of my bestest friends. Yeah. And um, we've we've been on a journey together. Um, and yeah, so so Anne, who's, who's also helping Steph with the website. Yeah. yeah. Um, and since then, I've gone semi-professional. I've been signed up by two agencies, um, one of which works closely with the NHS. And that agency employs me to give transgender awareness presentations to hospitals and universities all on the South Coast, from anywhere from um, London to um, Devon, uh, through East Sussex, West Sussex, yeah, yeah. Um, Wiltshire, Oxfordshire. And um, I, so I, I do transgender awareness presentations, but I also do actor role playing where I take the role of a trans woman who has an ailment. So one day I'll have a broken leg, another day I might have a heart attack. In fact, in some days I might have at least four or five heart attacks. <laughs> and you survived. <laughs> wow. And after lunch, I might have a bit of asthma. And, and the, best one I, I, the best one I do is with the paramedics because they have to do their what they call their OSCEs, their observed, observed um, structured clinical examinations. These are, these are the exams all doctors and nurses um, wow. To, to qualify Oskies. and I just have to lie there I just have to lie on this couch and get prodded by paramedics and what's the purpose of doing this as a trans one um two two things one is um that that I'm doing it at, well I'm doing it just as a patient but the most important thing is is that the the doctors and the nurses have to treat me with dignity and respect uh, and they also have to treat me biologically now I by I have biological male features. Yeah. I have a prostate. And so they have to, if I say I've got... If, if it was in an emergency situation, you may be unconscious. Um, yeah. You may not realise that. In a, yeah. In, in that situation, the, the, the policy in any hospital is that you don't you don't care about the gender or the sex of the individual. Yeah. Treat the ailment. So if they're bleeding, if they've had a heart attack, it doesn't matter whether you just treat the heart attack. You treat the bleeding. You treat the fact they're not um, responsive. Yeah. But after, I think I think it's about four hours. The clinicians may, must make a decision on how they're going to treat you, um, uh, and in, in, knowing you're, you know, you're a trans person. And then they have to ask questions, and they have to make a decision on which ward you go into. Yeah. And I them, and I, I, they ask me. I do a lot of training with nurses, first, second, third year nurses. And one of the questions I get all the time is if a trans person comes into my surgery, what do I do? Panic, 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 or what? And I have a checklist that I run through with them. Rule number one, rule number two, rule number three, um, to make them feel comfortable in treating, and all nurses and doctors, they are fantastic people. They are, I, you know, if I hadn't joined the army, I, on reflection, I would have joined the NHS because the, the ethos of the NHS is just wonderful. They treat everybody with care, not just patients, but each other. Yeah. Um, so they must treat all patients with care, with, with dignity and respect. And that's what I teach them for trans people. Um, uh, I can go into detail on that, but, um, yeah, that, that, that's what I do with, with, with the hospitals. So it's really around training nurses doctors into you know how to do this in a respectful way yeah i mean how do you one role i play which is the most intriguing i have to play a trans woman 
with rectal bleeding. <laughs> Good grief. And I'm, I'm glad he laughed because that's what all the doctors do as well. We have a great laugh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, they, sure they, I'm not sure why I'm laughing. It doesn't sound very funny. But. Well, well, they they have to they have to respect the fact that my, I, I present as a as a woman, but I do as a responsible uh, patient. I have to tell them that I've got a prostate because if I go with stomach pains, yeah, tell them I haven't got a prostate, then they then I send them down a different diagnostic path. Yeah, so it's the clinical decisions are made on what you tell them. Yeah, so so you know I. I and then they have to, um, um, you know, give, 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 ask me to go and do tests on myself in the loo. <laughs> we all have a good laugh. But... Maybe you get paid for this, Julie. I oh, know. <laughs> is, this, is this voluntary or do you actually get paid? I'll get paid. Oh, yeah. good. I was going to say. Like, these sound like serious things they're asking you to do if you're not paying you. Yeah. And, and the, another role play, I have, to, I have to go in with a subdural hemorrhage. So my trans woman who can't remember a thing because <laughs> that's what happens when you have bleeding on the brain i mean i'm really curious how did you get into doing that I, well interesting I, I got it through chrysalis to be honest i went i went to their first conference um oh, four years ago now i suppose and there was a stand set up by the agency um who does uh actor role playing and i said um what do you do and they told me and they were they wanted me they said come and join up sign up because we need diversity. We need a trans woman. At the moment, they just got hairy blokes with beards playing a trans woman. And they're very convincing. So they, they, they saw me and they liked my, so they, they signed me up. And you're also involved as a facilitator with trans support groups within prisons? Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I've been to about three or four prisons where I've given presentations, but one in particular, uh, I look after their transgender prisons. Yeah. Of which any one time, there's only about three or four. There's some... Is this is this male prisons you're going to, or female prisons, or both? Okay, it is all male, and for one reason and one reason only, which is that they are all sex offenders. Okay. All 600 of the lovelies. Um, they are all the most heinous criminals in the country. They are the rapists, the people. So is, that, is that the unit that you specifically... No, this is the whole prison. Okay. The whole prison is... Oh, the is... whole prison, all, all the prisoners in, the, in that particular facility yeah. are sex offenders. Are, yeah. are sex offenders, yeah. Right. And people say, oh, Julie, why on earth do you go to a prison full of sex offenders and give support to convicted rapists? And I say, well, the reason is because most of them will be released at some stage. Not all, but some, but, but most of them. And we don't want them to re-offend. And the point about transgender prisons is that they'll come out um, and they'll want to live their lives in their gender identity, which they feel most comfortable. And I, I personally don't want them to re-offend, so I give them emotional support. But some of those prisoners are only there because of the society that has sent them there. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I won't mention any names. One prisoner, when she was six years old, she was a little boy, she started to wear her mother's skirts. And for that, her dad beat her to a pulp most weeks. Every time, like most trans people, you, you know, male to female, you were born as, uh, identify as a boy and expected to live as a boy. But when you start wearing skirts, dresses and presenting your feminine side, 
in this case, this person was beaten to a pulp. And by the time she got about 12 years old, she was fed up with being beaten to a pulp for wearing skirts. So she burnt the house down. She put, set fire to a whole house and was put into uh, jail in youth, youth custody for about five years for arson. And during that time, she met loads of criminals who taught her how to be a professional criminal. And then when she was released, she went into a life of crime, mostly burglary. And then she burgled a house. And also, and she was on drugs as well. She went into a life of drugs. And she um, was sent to prison for about 15 years because during one burgle, burglary, she sexually uh, abused you know, the person in the house, the woman. And so she was convicted of a, uh, a sex offence and went to jail. And she was released after 15 years with, an, uh, with me giving her emotional support. Now, you have to ask the question, would that person have committed that heinous crime by burglary, going on drugs, and then committing a sexual offence if that person wasn't beaten to a pulp as a six-year-old by her dad because she was wearing skirts? And the answer is, um, no, no. If, if she was in a more um, trans-accepting society, like uh, we, we are living in today, more accepting than before, if her dad had said, ah, I see you like wearing skirts, my son, then that's fine. If that's what makes you feel happy, then you can wear a skirt. And I'll talk to the school and let them wear a skirt at school. And if you want to go to the next step and live as a girl and change your name, then that's fine. Now, if that person's dad had said that to the six-year-old, that six-year-old wouldn't have burnt the house down by the time she got to 12. And that's, you know, that is why... Um, I get really angry when I see all these gender critical people condemning um, someone who's born into a male body um, from presenting themselves as a woman, um, because what they're doing is looking after their good, their good mental health and being a positive uh, member of society uh, rather than going down a life of crime. And as we know, Vicky, you know, in, in places like Brazil and Thailand, many trans boys, trans girls, sorry, they go into a life of prostitution mm -hmm. uh, because that's all that's available to them because of the yeah. public society. And then that gets them into drugs and that gets them into the criminal underworld. And there was that study done in Sweden, which showed that a lot of um, people who transitioned from male to female still had male pattern violence. Well, that's not the whole story. The fact is they went into a life of crime and they became prostitutes and they had to defend themselves when they were repeatedly, repeatedly beaten up in dark alleys. So what, no wonder they retained male pattern violence. They had to, to defend themselves from being killed. <laughs> so that study, which is repeatedly used by Turks in their various um, submissions to parliament, is totally uh, um, uh, incorrectly used by them. So, you, you know, you, you touched on the issue of, you know, your, your upbringing, your background, where those people who end up in those situations kind of came from, how they ended up there. Um, so your 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 work as a facilitator in these prisons, obviously, you know, you, you're providing support for people who are probably coming out as trans or transitioning. Do you, do you also find that in certain cases it's used as a kind of a currency within the prison system? Yes. 
Now, the, the, the big issue here is that there are genuinely transgender prisoners. They are um, all male, and for all their life, they have not been comfortable with that um, male um, biology. And they are genuine, and they need to transition and live as women. Whether they're a criminal or not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just, just on a general, um, without going in, in, into specifics, there, there are also uh, highly manipulative sex offenders who, I, who see a route. I mean, they are in that jail because they have um, uh, abused young boys, abused girls, they've raped women. And that is the driving force. They have this sexual um, energy that drives them to do to commit crimes and to abuse other people and to get to that sexual fix. They have to go through the process of violence. So they have to violently attack someone to have their sexual fix and they will do anything. And so they and they're very clever. They're manipulative. And even and when I go to the jail, I get a piece of paper which I have to read, which tells me that I am about to be manipulated by a prisoner and be wary. Um, and some of them will, will, will very cleverly do a lot of research and know what it is to be trans and they will pretend to be trans and they will convince in the prisons there's something called a transgender case board or complex case board which is a group of uh, prison staff and psychologists who have to re review trans people and decide on how they should be treated and indeed whether should be, they should be allowed to go into the female prisons and those transgender case boards have to you know, the, the, these manipulative uh, prisoners, they can sometimes be so clever that they will pull the wool over the eyes of these trained psychologists and prison officers. And then they get put into the female estate and cause havoc. And we, we, we and the next thing, we're all reading about it on the Daily Mail, one page of the Daily Mail or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, that is a failure. If, if a trans prisoner who is manipulative and, and, and isn't actually trans in the first place, just a someone acting so basically they're abusing the system they are abusing the system and there's a failure in the system uh that allows them to go through into the female estate and so when people complain about trans women going to the female estate and raping women i can categorically say that that person was not trans in the first place they were just a manipulative sex offender who decided to pretend so how do you how do you differentiate between the ones that are manipulating the system to get the you know the the kind of the benefits of, of of abusing the system from someone who is genuinely trans? I mean, I I understand that you know within the trans community within any community you're always going to get a criminal element. Yeah. So, you know, there will be genuine trans people who are criminals who are in prison. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So how how do you how do you kind of identify? Okay, this is a genuine trans person who's got themselves in prison for whatever reason, um, who maybe needs to go and be put in the other prison, you know, compared to someone who's abusing the system. The only people who can really do this properly are well-qualified, hugely experienced psychologists and psychiatrists who have got um, a wealth of experience and can... I mean, there's lots of clues. Um, if you look on the International Classification of Diseases Edition 11 um, definition of gender dysphoria, they 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 list uh, all these things that, that a trans person must have a persistent uh, um, anxiety about being trans from the age of 
whatever, four, five, six years. And, 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 and one of the big problems is that there's not many trans people around. There's less than 1% of us. So, um, you know, there are very few experienced psychologists who've got that uh, in-depth knowledge and background who can really identify a genuine trans person from someone who's masquerading. As and do you get involved in those decision-making processes? I do, I do get invited onto the transgender case. And you're also um, governor of a hospital. Yeah, governor of Hampshire Hospitals Foundation Trust. Um, I'm on their website. So um, I've been one for three years and I give advice to Hampshire hospitals on trans issues. And I do presentations for their, for example, um, LGBT History Month, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but most importantly, um, I'm just a governor. Um, I'm just another governor. I, I, nothing, nothing to do with the fact. So I sit on Zoom calls like this with another ten or fifteen governors and uh, directors and chief executives of the hospital trust, and I give my uh, thoughts as a governor on how the hospital is running, on the issues that they're up against, and you know, and the point is, is that by the by the nature of being a governor, most governors are. Um, um, middle-aged and well-qualified. Um, uh, I've got to be got to be careful here. <laughs> Just um, people that you would expect traditionally to become governors. <laughs> and I'm a trans person and there's not many trans governors, but they don't, they don't, they, they don't take the trans issues. You know, they just see through anything. I'm just, no, no. You're just a governor. You're not a governor because you're trans, are you? No, I, I'm just a governor because I'm, I'm interested in, in helping the hospital yeah, yeah. more efficiently. So you, you're not there for any specific reason related to transgender patients? No. Yeah. no. But yeah, another fascinating thing that you do. Yeah. So let, let's get on to Steph's Place. And I know you were kind of one of the founders of Steph's Place. Yeah, Steph set up. Steph's place, I think it was in 2020, around about the first lockdown, um, because she was so uh, angry. She was a political person, member of the Labour Party, yeah. and she was so angry about all the misinformation that was being um, put out by all these gender-critical people. She decided she wanted to do something about it. She set up her website, and I started following it on Twitter. And then we interacted a bit, and then she looked at my website and realised that I was quite um, active within the trans community in terms of all the stuff that I've done. And she invited me to become a co-editor. Yeah. And there's about four co-editors. Mm -hmm. I was invited to be one. And I started uh, writing articles. Um, the most interesting one I wrote was on toilets. <laughs> oh, yes. The other, the other famous trans issue. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and I look back at the history of toilets going back to about 16-something or other. And then through to the suffragette movement, which um, brought in ladies' toilets many years after men's toilets were brought in. And, uh, yeah, concluded that, uh, that toilets have been around for 100 years and you, anybody can walk into them. And has there been an issue with trans women going into the ladies' loose? No, not one single complaint, over 100 years. So what are they picking up a song and dance about? They've got no evidence, no evidence whatsoever that it has ever, ever been a problem. Anyway, that's one article, but yeah. I, uh, five or six articles. But the trouble is my transgender business interests were growing. And um, I, I I was running out of 
hours in the day. So I'm I'm not a co-editor, but I'm a member of the outer circle. And literally last night, I was up until midnight reviewing an article that Steph asked me to review uh, on transgender healthcare. Um, so I'm yeah I'm still active, and as you know, I'm, I I make the occasional comment on the WhatsApp group. You do indeed. And uh, I gave some advice just recently on uh, uh, how to submit um, complaints to the police in order to get it looked at in a timely manner. So, yeah, I'm still involved in the margins, but not as a co-editor. Yeah, and as Steph's place has developed, you know, there were, I think there was four, four co-authors, of um, editors originally. It's kind of, it's expanded into, you know, doing podcasts now. Yeah. Um, one or two others have joined in as well. So, yeah, it's 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 become a real kind of force for the good, hasn't well, it? What what Steph has done is fantastic because she's got the ear of politicians mm. and um, members of the House of Lords. And um, the thing about Steph is that she is extremely diplomatic. Um, so she will um, have her views on trans issues, and she will listen to gender critical views. Mm. And she will respond, but in a in a very um, respect respectful of other people's views, and that that gets her respect throughout the community and throughout the political institutions as well. Yeah. So you know that, that, that's that's why she. Um, uh, not an easy thing to do. Sorry. That's not an easy thing to do. That. It's not, and as you know, it's very easy to get very angry very quickly. Yes. Yeah. Bites the tongue and. And it can it can affect your mental health, having to deal yeah. with those things on a you know on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean I I've you you look on Twitter and you see the abuse that Steph gets. Oh yeah. From a, from people who come from a place of mostly ignorance and um, bigotry, because they just really haven't bothered to read into what it all really means. They don't understand the concept of looking after your good health. They don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um they don't understand the the concept of the word gender, where it came from, um, and they don't understand the difference between sex and gender. And so they come at Steph from position of ignorance and fire off all this abuse, and Steph just bats it off in a very respectful and dignified way. And it was really nice last Friday, you know, to be at the National Diversity Awards, where Steph's place won an award, and Steph's was amazing. It was and fantastic. The only person of the whole evening who got a standing ovation. So, yeah. you know, in a room full of, you know, cis cis women, yeah. cis men, yeah. you know, to get that kind of response and that kind of support was amazing. And and it, and it just well. goes to show that these gender critical people say we are fighting for women. We are the voice of women. All this is absolute rubbish because, as you saw at the NDA awards half the audience that stood up were cis women. They didn't sit, they just didn't sit there with their hands oh, there, there was a huge applause. There was, everybody mm-hmm. was standing up. It was and when I give my actual, moment. Yeah, when I do my nurse training, the first question I ask, and most nurses are female, the first question I ask is how many of you know a trans person? Over half of them put up their hands. And they, I say, do any of you know a gender critical person? No one put up to that. No, I mean I've never really come across one. No, and the, you know, and they're, they're very vocal online, and they're very vocal they're, in certain areas. But you well, they're know, only vocal online because that's the only outlet where they can express their views, where they're hiding behind some daft pseudonym for start. Yeah, like Posey Parker, and <laughs> and and where they know they can't 
get called out. But in the place of work, the place of education, they cannot express their, their, their unpleasant views. That's why they are so vocal online. But when you talk to people, I talk to the nurses and I say, I explain to them what gender critical means. And they say, really? And they say, that is disgusting. I'm ashamed to be part of this gender identity we know as women, if that's what other women are like. They don't want anything to do with this gender critical. So gender critical people do not represent women. And they have no evidence. You look at their websites, you look at Fair Play for Women, you look at Sex Matters, you look at all these other websites. They don't tell you how many people support them. They're very narcissistic and they they support each other. But you you can look at other charities, for example, um, Women's Institute, for example, and they will tell you that they have got hundreds of thousands of members and they're mostly women. Statistics. But you look at these other websites and you look at LGB Alliance, we know that they've got a few thousand members of which 7% are actually LGB and the rest are, are not. So, you know, yeah. people do not support women and they have no evidence. And it's getting quite worrying how some of these organisations, like some of the stuff that Posey Parker does, you know, it's it has ties into far-right groups. Absolutely. And we can see that from what happened at Brighton. Yes. You know, earlier they even admit it amongst themselves they now. You admit it. I mean, tweets where they actually admitted that that they're attracting far right fascist movements. Yeah, and these people are showing up at their yeah, you know, their rallies that they've they've yeah. organised. I mean, that is that is you know, not a good sign, is it? Yeah. Well, you say that it's not a good sign. Well, I mean, it's not a good sign for them that they're involved. Oh yeah, no, it's not a good sign groups, for them. You know, but you know, it shows you the truth behind it. Yeah. One reason why these groups have cropped up, they're trying to portray themselves as, as representing women, but they are simply a backlash. This is, sorry, this, this is just my opinion. But trans people have come from under the uh, radar of society through the early part of this century by means of internet. Trans people have come out and they have brought with them a language which people don't like, the use of pronouns and other terminology that wasn't around 20 years ago, non-binary, gender, queer, gender. These people are a backlash to a hugely successful wave of trans people who have come up from the radar of society into the full glare of the sunlit yeah. liberal democratic society. Yeah. And there is a backlash. They are, But that backlash is by a very tiny... When I was in the army and we did military training manoeuvres, um, we used to describe moving across the North German plain, tens of thousands of uh, NATO soldiers, I was one of them, and coming and defeating the Russians coming the other way, obviously a very topical topic. And we used to describe that we defeated the main army of the Russians, but we had to deal with small elements of enemy resistance, pockets of enemy resistance, just sweep them up. Deal, deal with them in the noise. And that's what these gender critical people are. They are small pockets of enemy resistance because the main uh, culture that we're dealing with, the great liberal Western democratic society, has now accepted us, trans people. Politicians use this word trans person in, the, in parliament. Newspapers have articles where they use the word trans person. That didn't happen 25 years ago. You had transsexual 
and transvestite. That was it. And they were regarded as people with mental illnesses they had to sort out by dressing up in women's clothes. Now we are so respected that we are talked about with respect in Parliament and by um, um, the great and the good. And so we have, as um, uh, an element of society, trans people, we have won the cultural war, but there are pockets, small pockets of enemy resistance that call themselves gender critical people or TERFs or whatever they want to use today or tomorrow. They are a minority that have that are vocal. And this is what happens when you have small small people. They are they 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 bark loudly. Like when you back an animal into the corner and it is afraid, it will make a lot of noise. And that's what we are dealing with. A small people group of people are making a lot of noise. And the greater good, that is most people in society, have accepted that trans people should be treated with dignity and respect and be just a normal part of that great mosaic that we call life. Indeed. Was it, is there anything else that your, you know, projects you're involved with, things you'd like to talk about? I just become a motorcycle instructor. No, really? <laughs> Yesterday, I got, I got my certificate. So I... <laughs> So I can now be a trans woman giving instruction. Now, the problem here is that I've got a male physique. You know, I've got big shoulders, six foot tall. I've got an Adam's apple. I've got a voice which is not very feminine. And so I've got to wear PPE on motorcycles, which is armor-plated um, leather jackets and helmets. So I need to try and make myself look really feminine, um, but on a motorcycle. And that's not easy. So that's my next challenge. Oh, get yourself a pink helmet. Exactly. My wife said, <laughs> I said, I, I said that to my wife. She said, no, you don't do pink. He said, you need a purple helmet. I think you, what you need is a trans flag colours leathers. That's what you need. <laughs> a trans bike. Trans bike. There you go. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. Well, it's, been, it's been great talking to you, Julie. We've covered a lot of topics there. Huh? Um, thanks so much for coming on and having a chat. It's my pleasure, Ricky, and uh, I hope what I said um, has an impact. Yeah, I think you know as as we as we move forward and Steph's place, you know, evolves. You know, there's there's so much great work they're doing. You know, it's only going to get better. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and um, there's going to be some changes. Steph's place in shortly and uh, it's yeah. going to get better and uh, going to attract even more uh, interest. Yeah, absolutely. Right, well, I'll sign us off there. It was really nice talking to you. Okay, Vicky. Anybody who's listening, please go look at Julie's website. And once again, it was juliemiller.me.uk. And if you want to get some motorbike lessons, Julie's your girl. Bye for now.